90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good. Super weird this week because it was the first day of school and I haven't been to school. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with myself on sabbatical. I mean, like, I have sabbatical plans, but it felt really strange not being a part of, like, the energy and excitement and everything that is, like, the first day of school. Yeah. I mean, I think most people go somewhere and disappear yeah. for a semester. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know. And I wondered if that was just a science thing or if other people do that. Yeah, I don't know. I once, I met with um, an art professor and he wants to talk about like big landscape stuff. He always wants to go on our field trips, but then won't ever come with me whenever I invite him. Um, <laughs> and he was on sabbatical, but he stayed around town. So I don't know. It's very weird. But hmm. here I am in my home office, not at work. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And broiling. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it is juicy. <laughs> so this week I saw a weather phenomena I have never seen before under these conditions. Under these conditions. Hmm. So, I, I mean, I guess I technically have seen the phenomena before, but I've never seen it this time of year. Okay. Hit me. It was 91 degrees outside, just about sunset. Mm-hmm. And there was fog <gasps> road on my way home. What? <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> The oh, dew point at the weather station so was, I think it was, I think it was 87 over 92 above <laughs> ground level. Oh my gosh. So I saw that we had broken a whole lot of um, high dew point temperature readings in eastern Oklahoma. So that stretches it over to you. That is impressive. Yep. I took a picture of it and a picture of the thermometer on the dash of my truck as proof that it was actually in existence. Did you think something was on fire at first? Yeah. I was like, oh, there's smoke. It's like, no, that's, that's fog. fog. But it's 91 degrees outside. Oh, that is super strange. Yeah. You definitely shouldn't have walked through it. That was definitely a portal to a different dimension. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terrifying. And then we also had some excitement. Uh, The house next to ours got struck by lightning a week ago. Oh, my gosh. That's terrifying. Also, I don't know what lightning is because we haven't had rain in so long. But um. Uh, We had had a lot. uh, And it was very, very electric. And, yes, it for the (laughs) – this is now the second year in a row that I've replaced, like, 15 light fixtures, LED light fixtures in my house. (gasps) (laughs) No kidding. <laughs> yep, because you get up in the morning and flip the switch and you hear, bop, 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 and they're gone. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, hopefully everyone is okay. Nothing burned down. Everyone was okay. There was minor amounts of fire. No um, kidding. Yeah, and we we lost a few things other than lights, but uh, the house that got struck lost almost everything electronic. <laughs> oh, man. We've had. Yeah, so it's been an, an exciting couple of weeks 
for us here weather slash things breaking wise <laughs> oh oh goodness okay it gets even worse i was gonna say it's been a very electric summer um one day and we go to um cripple creek for a field trip um well it's a fun field trip during camp and the entire town lost power due to a lightning strike. I mean, it's a small town, but the entire town had lost power. And um, everyone, we were there like two days after it had happened and everyone was still, someone took my credit card number by hand, which I thought was long gone, <laughs> but because their machines weren't working and all this. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember when I worked at uh, Radio Shack in high school, we still had one of the kachunka chunka uh, carbon copy machines. Oh man, if I the, loved if the system went down. I loved the kachunka chunka. <laughs> it was my favorite. <laughs> but anyway, and now you can't even do it because so many no. cards have the numbers on the back and they're not raised. And they're not even raised. Kids these days, they don't know what they're missing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's it. <laughs> That was a fun machine to operate, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but what else happened this week then? Oh, no, we just had, uh, we had a, our, our lawnmower had a carburetor malfunction that ended up filling our house with gas vapor in the middle of the night. And oh, that's yeah, great. It, it was, like I said, a very, very interesting couple weeks of, Weather and everything else just falling apart. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Having um, slept in a <laughs> slept in a vehicle with a gasoline jug, I know that it's not fun to wake up to. No, I woke up at about 1 in the morning with, you know, nose, eyes, throat burning. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yeah. something has happened. Oh, yeah. I remember, like, burping gasoline fumes for, like, two days straight after that. <laughs> yeah i was running from probably non-existent grizzly bears but i wasn't going to take any chances and so i abandoned my tent for the car which had all my drilling equipment in it and yeah burped gasoline for two days so yep yep i knew better uh well hopefully this next week is um less exciting in a good way yeah hopefully mm -hmm. uh but yeah but anyway so you know, you've been also, you say you missed the first week of school, but uh, you were traveling as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I just got back from Western Colorado, where we were coring another well, which is always a really exciting experience. Um, I think I probably belong on a drill rig. I just seem to fit in with those, um, the people who are out in the field doing that hard work. Those are my people. So we had a great You're time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> hey, now, I don't want to do that much work. I just want to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had a great time out there. I got to work the evening shift, which was great, considering it was 100 degrees every day. Um, and, yeah, it's something that I'm sure we will talk about in the near future. So that's actually kind of, I guess, how my sabbatical got kicked off was um, by traveling out there. Uh, what is incredibly frustrating which i totally understand so this is not a complaint but when we drill these wells we drill them and we use liners for the core so we don't miss anything and so we have these plastic liners and so the cores come up in these plastic liners and you can just sort of see them like they're clear but 
also they get kind of, you know, scratched up when during the drilling process. And so it's super frustrating to have to like cap these cores and you don't actually get to see the rocks until they make it all the way back to the Continental Scientific Drilling Facility in Minnesota. And four months later, they call you and say, oh, they're ready to come look at, you know, so it's, I just got back and now I just have to wait <laughs> until we get to right. go back up there. Right. So, so yeah, it's sad, but also glad we got it done. Probably have some students working on that and definitely a project that we can talk about in the future. Right. Yeah. And that also inspired, I don't know if it'll be quite the last of our basics for a little bit, uh, but potentially, but one of our basics episodes, which is we've talked about field equipment. We've talked about what you look for when you go to the field. But now it's more, how do you plan going to the field? Right. And this is, this is a skill that I would say nearly all grad students will have to exhibit during their time in graduate school. Geology or geophysical students alike are at some point going to have to plan for some type of field survey and with varying degrees of help from their advisors, right? So sometimes, right. sometimes this is a, okay, bring me your plan. Let's prove it. Um, sort of situation, which is what my advisor did, which I was very grateful for because now I know what I need to do to go out and plan a survey. And I mean, also, I mean, this is the class that we actually met in, right? Is geophysical, field survey class yeah mm -hmm. so this is and i was like who is this exactly person? and i said that's not fair geophysics is way easier than geology <laughs> his double degree doesn't count <laughs> and and we've been frenemies ever since that's right <laughs> cheers <laughs> um, but i mean that class although frustrating for numerous reasons was amazing too. I actually just found today my uh, my little cheat sheet that I had to make. So in that class, we had to basically adopt an instrument and then make a user sheet for it. Um, and so I, which I was very excited about, got GPR, ground penetrating radar. And I found my little cheat sheet for the GPR today. Oh yeah. Yeah. What did you have to do? Probably resistivity. I don't remember. Like well, we didn't have a commercial resistivity Oh, yeah, instrument. we didn't, did we? Mm -mm. I, had ha I had homemade one. Maybe you had to do the proton precession magnetometer or something. It might have been a magnetometer. Um, but, yeah, so in that class, we would have to, every week, have a plan to go out and take an, a new geophysical method and go measure something. And we were responsible for figuring out things to go measure and whether that particular method was the best way to measure that thing or not, which if you're in geophysics, you know, maybe that is, maybe that's something you're more concerned with. I mean, usually these things are kind of guided by your advisor in terms of, you know, what you've chosen to work on. So clearly like me and my students are going to go out and sample for paleomag on something that I think is going to work. You know, I'm not going to like go right. out there and try to figure something out with no prior knowledge 
of it going to work, but especially with geophysical methods, <laughs> like you really have to know what you're going to detect because the methods are so different before you, as you're designing your survey. Otherwise, it's called bag shaking. <laughs> uh, that's all geophysics, but I digress. <laughs> you just collect a bunch of data and make an interesting story up that's congruent oh, with it. Exactly. Which is actually a really great idea to do for a class just to see what works the best. But, you know, we were lucky enough on our campus, which I'm sure most campuses have, but we have some weird underground tunnels, right, that are... Um, that are metal. And so we were trying to sense those. Actually, the whole class came out to my house because we have a septic system and we were trying to figure out where the leach field was. And we were hoping that the leach lines were made of metal so we could figure it out. But because we couldn't detect anything, that was actually a lot of information because they weren't made of metal. They were made of that weird orange stuff and they had all um, collapsed. So we couldn't detect anything, and it turns out that cost me $10,000 the next week to fix. <laughs> but I remember coming out and trying to find your, your uh -huh. sewer leach field. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and no one could find it because it didn't exist anymore. So, mm -hmm. yeah. It was, um, I can't remember the name of that weird piping stuff. It's something orange that they use. It's like used. pressed paper, though, isn't it? Yeah, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it was not detectable. That's what we were trying to detect it with. Hmm. It was also pretty small, which was going to be difficult. Yeah, well, it had been squished had. essentially down to flat because it had all collapsed. So, yeah. <laughs> it was looking at a, you know, millimeter size <laughs> sheet of paperboard in our clay soil. So that did not work. Um, but that didn't have anything to do with the planning of the survey. The survey was planned out very well. It had to do with what we were trying to sense. But this is all stuff that you should think about when you are trying to plan a survey. And this is, I don't know about you, I feel like this was one of the most, hmm, like, useful things that I took with me from graduate school, both my master's and my PhD, into the real world. I, I would say so. Beca because it's like project planning, right? It makes you look at things from both the large-scale holistic picture, but also you have to plan for every tiny thing, like how many Sharpies am I going to need to mark my rocks when it comes time for data collection, right? So it's like large-scale down to very small-scale and having to figure out all those things in between. Yeah, I mean, because a lot of these places that we go collect data, there is no quick run to the hardware store. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, our field area in the Mojave is, you know, four hours away from anything, and we just go out there for five days. So you better bring all the things you need with you because leaving to fix something isn't an option. Right. So I thought we could talk some about both things that you need to consider when you're going to go out into the field from a more just field needs perspective, things like water, things like what you need to be carrying with you. Also talk about some of the more planning aspects, like how do you plan a geophysical survey on a very basic level or a sample collection uh, trip? 
in a sustainable and useful way before you go. Mm -hmm. And this is at all levels, I will say, because (laughs) as happened to us when we had a drilling break, we decided to go on a field trip um, when we were in Western Colorado. And this was not something that any of us were prepared for because we weren't out there to do field work. We were out there to drill. And it became immediately obvious that we were unprepared for what we wanted to do because we didn't have enough water. It was a hundred and something degrees. We all were wearing steel toe boots, which are not fun to hike in. Right? Like I love my steel toed boots are very comfortable, but not for, yeah, they're not for hiking. I mean, I'll disagree with you there because even when I went to Europe, I wore my steel toe boots because they're more comfortable than any tennis shoes I own. Uh, that's that's okay. a different. So a mine different don't answer. fit me that well, I guess. I will say that because <laughs> my gross bleeding foot will attest to. Um, right. But those things, it all comes into the fact of at any level, even if you're like, I'm just going to go out and see what's around. Like, I know myself enough now to say that I'm never going to do that. So we were on this little field trip and we only had a few, really a few minutes left. We had to be back at the rig because they were getting ready to run logs and everything, um, and then pull the casing. So we knew we had to be back, and we wanted to go one more place. (laughs) And I said, okay, we cannot do it, because we know once we get to this one more place, we had time to go to this place and look, but we knew that we weren't going to look. We were going to want to (laughs) sample and do all these other things, you know, take data points, draw some contacts, all this. And even though we had the time for that one short, let's go look, I said, no, because we know we're not going to do that. (laughs) And so you have to know that too. Like, what am I going to want to do when I get there? Because the worst thing ever is to be, get to this place and you finally found it. And then you're like, man, I wish I had a sample bag. Man, I wish I had brought my notebook so I could draw some stuff. You know, those are the things you have to anticipate too, because you want to be prepared for any eventuality once you're on site. And a lot of that comes with experience, having gone to a place and been like, oh, I forgot my sample bag, <laughs> right? But the point, right. the point of this show is to maybe help mitigate those things. If you haven't made those mistakes, listen to us, we have. Don't do that. <laughs> right, and I, you know, the first thing is definitely safety equipment. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you need water, you need a first aid kit, and you need proper clothing for the climate and terrain. Right. You don't want to forget your sunscreen when you're doing work in the Mojave Desert. It's not okay. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you may want gaiters for your boots, depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you definitely always want a first aid kit. Always. Mm-hmm. Don't show up in shorts when it's a definite situation where you would have wanted pants no matter what the temperature right and this applies to whether you're a grad student a professor or whether you're just an amateur geologist that's wanting to go out and collect some rocks oh exactly exactly so i didn't which is super strange have a hat because i knew i was going to be when i was out this last week in western colorado because i knew i was going to be drilling so i had my i had my own personal hard hat but I also knew I was working the night shift before I went out there so I didn't bring a field hat or a baseball cap or anything 
And so when we went on our hike in the middle of the day, I wound up tying my flannel around my head <laughs> to protect my scalp from sunburn, you know. And that was not ideal because it was very, very hot. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I wish I would have just worn my hard hat. But uh, yeah. So those situations, right? First thing, plan for all those eventualities. And it may seem annoying to have to carry a safety kit, but I mean, it's not annoying. It always comes in handy. And a minimal safety kit that has like tweezers, definitely tweezers, scissors, right. a couple of band-aids goes a long way. Oh yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. Just some things to help, you know, stop bleeding, get things out of your skin, that yeah. sort of thing. Yep, exactly. Because that's, that's the big one. Well, for me anyway, that's the big one. <laughs> um, right. I'm pretty klutzy. <laughs> 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 yeah, so lots of cactuses and I have become very good friends. Um, so those are good things to have. And this is something that does change over time that I've learned. So that's something I would have taken out as a grad student or just going on a fun field trip with my buddies. But as you get to be in charge of people, and this is true for being a TA too, you know, those things get bigger and more important. So it's like my field medical kit is much larger now that I'm the boss out in the field, right? We carry a lot of different things. Like one of my instructors carries, you know, like a, a foldable backboard and we have tourniquets and all this other jazz that we carry as well. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So you have to like realize what your job within the larger field excursion is and make sure you're prepared for that too. Right. And then I'm going to say related, but getting more towards the geophysical side is you need to plan your power budget. <laughs> Geophysics is batteries. <laughs> Geophysics is batteries. But even if you're not doing geophysics, even if you're going out just on a, a Saturday, you're probably going to be using your phone to look at maps, to track where you are, to take pictures, to take data. And if that phone is dead and on the way back in, you fall and hurt your ankle, you're not going to be able to call for help. Yeah, that's exactly right. If you're using an app like Firefox, um, which is what our geophysicists use quite a bit to take data out in the field. I mean, it does pretty well. Like it doesn't run down your battery super fast, but yeah, absolutely. There's almost no excuse for someone in charge not to have a solar charger because they're so transportable now. Easy to have, easy to use. Yeah. And I don't even know if I would go as far as solar, just saying have, you know, you can get a, a 10,000 milliamp hour battery that's going to charge your phone a couple of times. Yes. That is true. And leave it stuck in your bag. That's true. Uh, mm -hmm. That's great for day and weekend. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And then if you are doing a geophysics survey, yes, plan your batteries. <laughs> make sure you have enough batteries for your instrument uh, or make sure you do have a way to charge them. Make sure you've actually done some tests. Don't just go like, oh, well, you know, I've got three batteries. That's probably yeah. good. <laughs> you should know how long each battery lasts in each of your instruments. Mm -hmm. That is exactly right. I mean, the first time taking the drone out, I think everybody was like, oh, like when the drones first came out, you know. And it's like, Eight oh. minutes, we're done. <laughs> exactly. And it was like, well, I planned the afternoon. I guess, I guess we'll go home. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly right. And different situations for your batteries, right? Because as you know, working in Antarctica, batteries work different depending on the temperature. Yeah. I mean, lithium ion batteries don't like being really hot or really cold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you got to uh, plan for those eventualities. Yes, for sure. And if you are leaving field equipment, like leaving seismometers deployed, you need to have a plan for either charging those batteries or having enough. Yeah. Or having a student so could to be, go out and take care of them every few days. <laughs> right. It could be your solar setup. It could be, yep, you're going to have a grad student drive out there every three days and swap batteries and bring more back to the university to charge. Mm-hmm. There's lots of different ways to get around it, but you need to have a plan. And the plan of we'll deal with it when we get there is not a plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's really rarely a plan, just on reconnaissance missions. And even then, you should still have an idea, like I said, of what you think you will need and bring it with you. And, you know, kind of the next one that comes to mind for me in terms of geophysics anyway, is you should have the location that you're going to do your survey well scouted, though this happens, you know, it applies to geology too, based on... It can be as simple as Google Earth. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when we were um, placing our location for this core, this well we were going to core, right, we had a location based on geophysics. We took that location, put it on Google Earth, and said, okay, is this feasible? Um, because I can't tell you the number of times when I worked in the industry where we would want to drill a well. And the maps that we worked on weren't road maps, right? And so we just had maps and we were like, oh, we own this 640 acres. Great. I'm going to put a well in the southwest corner or the northwest quarter. And here it is. And then we'd hand it off to our landmen and the land would be like, dude, there's a Walmart there. <laughs> <laughs> and, right. and so like it's something that we just never checked or did anything with and you're like oh okay maybe I should have checked that before now I have to go back to the drawing board and so we go out and the same thing happened like we've got this lat lawn from our geophysics and it was on a road well we're not going to do that so now we have to figure out where still honors our science and can answer our science questions but we'll also be you know, a safe place to go. And so we got that lat long and then we went out there to actually physically site the well. And it turns out there was this sort of fence, weird tree area that wasn't on Google earth. So now we've got to move it again, you know? And so that went on and on several times because the scientific best place and the Google earth best place were not the on the ground best place. Yes, and I remember doing some gravity surveys where I was, uh, our team, our group was criticized of why there are no points in this section of the map, and we showed on Google Earth, it's because that was like a 100-foot bluff. (laughs) Still no excuse. (laughs) And drones weren't really a thing at that point. (laughs) That's funny. One of my first graduate students, we had a very similar argument where... um, we wanted to sample this dolomite in Nevada and there 
it was near what had been described as a ditch. And so we're like, well, how big is this ditch? Is this a ditch we can get into or whatever? And we look on Google Earth and we're like, yeah, that looks kind of big. It's kind of hard to tell. You know how it gets all weirdly rendered when you're on the ground. We're like, ah, it's fine. And we totally planned on spending like a day there in this ditch. And we get there and it was the same thing. The ditch was like 60 feet high. <laughs> and it was great. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't bring rope. So we were not doing that. <laughs> right. Um, and you know, if you're going to put out a seismic line, yeah, make sure that you're not going to do something like cross a road. Yes. Mm-hmm. Cause that's not going to work. Yeah, uh, exactly. The other thing to consider is the spacing of your data points, be that how far apart your geophones are, how far apart your, uh, strike dips are, how far apart your gravimetry points are. Mm-hmm. And you have to be realistic time-wise. <laughs> that one I feel like you don't know until you do it, right? <laughs> that realistic... You, you don't know until you do it, but yeah. also, do you know the rule of pi? Uh-uh. Okay, so you you figure out your best estimate of how long it's going to take you to accomplish a task, and you multiply it by pi, and that's how long it's actually going to take. <laughs> I love that. That seems like um, where they tell you to take your own test as a professor and then multiply it, yeah. At least double it. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Um, so, and you know, we've, <laughs> we kind of use that in, uh, bidding jobs. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Because I used to weigh under bid all the time. Ah. And then we kind of started saying, okay, well, how, what's, I feel like this is going to take me, I don't know, two days to do. And then you multiply it by pi and you're like, actually, it's going to take me six days to do. So I'm going to bid that. And if we come in under, great, everybody's happier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And generally, you come in somewhere between five and six days. No kidding. That's very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that can vary really widely depending on your team, you know, who you're taking out with you, which I think about now a lot more that I'm in charge of things as opposed to just a, a piece in someone else's puzzle or just a field assistant for somebody and yeah it can it can vary really widely so i could see pi being a good first approximation of like longest time right and no matter what you're doing you know if it's just you out looking for rocks or you're leading a a survey it's good to challenge people to give them responsibilities Mm -hmm. or to challenge yourself like okay i'm gonna hike a little further than I've done before, or I'm going to go look at a more complex outcrop than I've done before, but always work within your capabilities in yes. terms of safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's knowing when you need to take breaks too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Well, or if, you know, somebody has very little field experience, probably shouldn't put them in charge of a team that's going to go hike and take, you know, your $100,000 gravimeter up this steep, narrow, windy trail that's covered in snakes. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is exactly right. And not an over-exaggeration of how much a gravimeter cost. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a used one. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. 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 And there are scenarios, you know, that, that comes from not too far off of a true story. <laughs> <clears throat> Those who will remain nameless. <laughs> and, you know, staying in the, same, in the same vein, if you are not an experienced outdoors person, 
you really need to pay attention to things like the weather because depending on where you are, that can change very quickly. Uh, Mm -hmm. We've seen multiple examples of people getting caught outside in hailstorms while they're doing field work and almost being beaten to death. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is totally a thing that can happen, especially if you have wind with those hailstorms and you don't want baseball sizes of ice being whipped at your face, right? Lots of people get really hurt from those situations. Um, It never ceases to amaze me how few people check weather before they go out in the field. Right. And it can be heat hazard. It can be severe weather like hail or thunderstorms. Uh, You know, if you, if you're not experienced working in canyons, don't go working in canyons if there's weather for anywhere in the area, anywhere in the area, because that's where everything drains into. So even if it's not raining on you, you can still be caught in a flash flood. All these things you should be aware of the, geologic and meteorologic hazards um and for people in charge too and this you know happens a lot at field camps you want to push people beyond their comfort zone but not beyond their safety zone and so you know students need to speak up too and say look I'm not comfortable with this this is beyond like what my body can do this is beyond what I feel that I am capable of doing safely and people need to respect that you know So that's an attitude that turns a lot of people off from field work. Um, It's definitely something that attracted me because I'm very much a whole like, oh, yeah, like I can do this. And I get real, you know, wrapped up in that sort of thing. But people need to realize, especially people in charge, that not everyone has your same comfort level. And so you need to take that into account. Well, and it can be a character flaw the other way, too, because, I mean, honestly, you and I would probably scramble up the side of a mountain to see who could get there first until we both pass out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which is not a great thing. No, no. I remember trying to show off. Um, I think this was at when we were at camp together and <laughs> running down a scree slope and losing my balance and, like, barrel rolling onto a road. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was fun, but <laughs> yeah, and you know, you're. I'm sure that at this point you're thinking, well, a lot of these things don't have anything to do with the geology. And my sort of unpopular opinion among geologists, <laughs> I think, is when you're in the field, you're not in the field to do science. Mm. You're in the field to collect data. Mm. Science happens after you get the data back. You're exactly right. That is exactly right. And that Stop can... taking your time sitting yeah. out there in the field trying to analyze data, not sleeping trying to analyze data. <laughs> Collect data, do science when you get back. I love that. I think that is absolutely right. Because, okay, well, with the caveat of you've done your due diligence in planning your field work. If you've done that, and you have a good field campaign planned, you absolutely should only be collecting data because you've already thought about all this stuff before you went out. Right, and you don't want to preferentially steer yourself in the field to only collect data that's going to support what you think's happening. That is exactly right, because you can see stuff while you're out there that causes you to go, "Uh uh-oh, but you should stick to your original hypothesis because the truth are in the data And therefore, maybe you've got to go out again, but that's great because you didn't miss anything because you planned for all the contingencies and all the situations 
on the front end. You didn't say, oh, well, I'm going to go take a hike up this canyon, even though I didn't plan to, and miss what you really meant to get and had planned to get the first time around. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I've, I've definitely seen too much of the, we're going to collect data for 12 hours today. We're going to go back and analyze it for eight hours tonight. We're all <laughs> going to get three hours of sleep. Uh-huh. And go back out for another twelve-hour day tomorrow, exhausted and dangerous. Oh man! To just probably collect the same data we were going to anyway. <laughs> I yeah, I think that is. Well, I guess it depends on what kind of stuff you do. The worst part and best part about PMAG is there's zero possibility of knowing what you have until you got it in the lab. So yeah. <laughs> so at least I don't run into it there. But I've definitely been associated with stratigraphic and geophysical data collection that is exactly what you just described. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm not going to say, okay, like you're collecting data with a magnetometer and you can tell as you're running the instrument that you're seeing nothing. Yeah. Okay. Maybe don't continue to collect a bunch of nothing. And use that time a little more wisely. <laughs> like yes. Space your data points out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So you can cover more ground. And, you know, maybe that'll lead to a follow-up survey. But in completely changing the game plan once you're in the field is dangerous. Yes. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Because, I mean, confirmation bias is a very real and very disturbing thing. And so... Whether you're looking to prove something or looking to disprove it, you will, because that's what you're looking for. And uh, the last one, I know I've been rattling these off and haven't let you cut in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the last one that I will, I will say is if somebody says, we'll fix it in post, you have the legal obligation <laughs> to slap them. <laughs> You fix the it number of times right that there. I saw survey data get collected with massive amounts of labor only for it to be found that it was completely useless because there were three or four of those, ah, oh, we'll fix that when we process the data moments that nobody wrote down. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. Just collect good data. Correct. While you're there. If Right, while you're there. If if you screwed up and some, you know, you didn't calibrate the equipment, uh, you didn't do a drift correction data point, yeah, yeah, you got to go back and redo those points. But do that. Yes. There is... Less good data is much more valuable than a lot of garbage data. Oh, yes. I, I feel like there's even less of an excuse for this kind of business to happen now. Um, one of the big things that I harp on and... I haven't found a way around it. This is truly a situation of everyone has to make this mistake. They just don't believe you is I will tell people don't take a picture of something and say, I'll describe this later. Don't do it. You will not. (laughs) Yeah, that is correct. You're not going to. The only way that I will not lose my stuffings on you in the field when I see you taking a picture is if you're annotating that picture directly on your device. (laughs) And so I do that 
I think it is fantastic. It's one of my favorite things about both my phone and my tablet is the situation that it has with the stylus and the notes and how easy it is to take a picture and then annotate things in it. But you better believe I have also recorded that stuff in my field book. <laughs> because yes. when you spend 45 minutes at a site and you say, I'll take a picture of those holes later. I don't need to label them now. And that happens a couple of times. That's a lot of time completely wasted. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of resources. And it is incredibly frustrating. Um, when I have students in the lab that run our paleomagnetic samples, you know, they're used to running these cores and they run these cores and they run them. And then if they take like paleomag class and they come out and collect them, invariably, they always say, I had no idea how precious each one of these samples is. Right. And it's like, you yeah. you want to hike and haul water and haul the drill and everything. Exactly. And it's like, sometimes you only get, you know, one little sample, I mean, per, per little hole, because the, the rock is really hard, something breaks, you know, anything like that. And they're like, wow, I just had no idea. And so really until you experience it, until you get back to sit down and work on something and you're like, man, I've got these pictures. I don't even know where I took this picture at. I don't even know what rock this is. I don't know why I took a picture of it. Until you experience that, you don't really learn this lesson, but it is something that I harp on because it's so devastating. Like it could be as little as, oh, there's this picture. I don't know what it is. It's no big deal to, oh my gosh, I just lost all this data from this site. Because I told myself, oh, I'll remember it. And I didn't. Right. And if you take a picture without a scale and a color reference, Ugh, it's not useless. Even it. Not even worth it. Mm -hmm. That is exactly right. And really, I mean, I don't know. It was probably just me being a geophysicist. <laughs> but in the back of your Right in the Rain notebook is a card that is a scale it has a north arrow, and is it a white balance color reference? Yep, it sure is. Use it and point it north. Yeah. Yes. So the north arrow I get angry at because I could never trust anyone's picture with that card in it except my own, right? Because I'm like, right. oh, did you just put this card in it? <laughs> you know? Did you put this card in it because of the scale? Or did you actually, like, pay attention to this north arrow? Mm-hmm incredibly frustrating for sure right or put something you know well known if it's a macroscopic photo use a dime or whatever yeah yeah i <laughs> it's like one of my i figured this out that it actually is probably one of my pastimes because one of my sabbatical goals is to like clean up my digital life both my class notes and things but also my personal digital life and I am obsessed with taking photos of of like macros photos of things that look like satellite photos just to prove this whole thing of scale right so I have right. innumerable like <laughs> alluvial fans of mud coming off like parking curbs <laughs> that I've taken really up close <laughs> and then like sit next to like a Google Earth picture yeah i have the weird little those weird little blueberries they're the hematite coated balls that form out west like in the navajo sandstone and stuff so i have 
macros pictures of those and then the pictures of the little blueberries on Mars, you know, and I'm like, which one's Earth? You know? <laughs> yeah, I clearly have a problem, but also it's a great way to illustrate that. I have some really excellent alluvial fans that look like Death Valley, but they're actually just like the parking curb outside of Sarkis. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep, my favorite thing. I mean, these are all really good things. It's not, it's not easy to say how to plan a survey until you actually have to plan it. But I did mean that this is one of the most useful things that I took out of school because it really helps you to get your mind around all aspects of a project and how important it is, especially once you become in charge of projects, if you ever do how important, important it is to make sure everyone knows their part in the project, what they're expected of beforehand, during, and after the project. Because if you don't give clear instructions, just like you said, John, like it's all, there's no amount of post-processing that can make up for someone not having done their job at any one of those points. Yeah. And, you know, if you're saying, well, I'm, I'm just a geology enthusiast. If there's an area you really want to learn about, both geographically and, say, an area of geology or geophysics, plan a survey. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're not going to execute it, but armchair plan it. Make the game plan. How would you collect data? What would you research before you went? Because you're going to learn a lot about that area or about that geophysical method or about that field of geology just in thinking through how would you plan this survey. Exactly. And what you also might find, even if you're just interested in this stuff, is you, say, you would say to yourself, hey, I think it'd be cool to know, you know, the magnetic susceptibility of this area because I think there are ores over here and here. And then you can, like, start to Google that. And maybe someone else has also thought that up which is annoying if you're the person who wanted to research it. But <laughs> if you're just a person that wants information and you're like, oh, hey, here's that answer to the survey that I had just planned. Here it is. Here's the answer. That's really great, you know? And so it can also make you, as a researcher, think, oh, well, this was a good idea. Somebody already did it. So obviously this idea was valid. Um, so, yeah, at any level, that's... This is an excellent way to think about a problem, to gain information, also just, you know, try your hand at some deep work in terms of trying to figure out some questions you might have about geology or geophysics. Right. And then once you get all of your data and you bring it back and you do the science, what do you do with it? Um, I guess you're going to have to probably, if you're unlucky... Make a poster of it and present it at a conference. <laughs> Which is the topic of this week's Fun Paper Friday. Yay. <laughs> oh, man. This just goes into my Luddite files of why computers are the worst. But also, this is really funny. Yeah. So, <laughs> this is a poster. Uh, thanks, Daryl, for sending this in. <laughs> That is, you can just put up a poster at ICML and nobody will stop you by Jimmy Neutron, Chet GPT-4, 
and Ada Grodd. <laughs> oh, it's Jimmy Neuron because they didn't want to get, you know, copyrighted. Oh, yeah, so. not Neutron. That was, wow, that was definitely reading what I expected. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, with a blow up where you would usually see your university's or your institution's um, logo, and it says FedEx is all you need. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, you can't fault him. I've seen worse put-together posters by students before, that's for sure. Yeah, and they say in the background, a perennial problem in machine learning research has been how to most efficiently have a poster at ICML. In this work, we show that one can bypass open review via a simple FedEx trick, similar (laughs) to yet entirely different uh, from the kernel trick in machine learning. This represents a substantial improvement over the prior. Uh, So there, in in machine learning, there are a lot of things that are like tricks, like there's the kernel trick. There's all these different ways that you can do things to machine learning algorithms. So that's why they call it the FedEx trick. Okay. All right. Gotcha. (laughs) <laughs> which I mean essentially they're just printing out a poster that says we can print out this poster what I do love is in their background they have the little box just like I don't remember who it is that uses this is it is it the BMJ there's some journals that make you write a synopsis of your research question and then the answer up front in the abstract and so this right, has it yeah. too. <laughs> Research question. Can you just put up a poster at ICML? Answer. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just the best. <laughs> oh. For simplicity, this work treats and consists of a poster with only one layer. Future work will focus on deep <laughs> posters with many layers. <laughs> and so they go through a theory section, which is, you know, customary. When they have two theorems, one. The free lunch theorem. <laughs> That's amazing. And then (laughs) theorem two, they follow up the universal approximation theorem for posters. (laughs) Because it says, as is customary, we may also, or we also include an additional theorem unrelated to our main contribution. (laughs) Right. I thought that was a little slap in the facey, but I quite appreciated it. (laughs) As well as figure one. Amazing. Yeah, figure one is a figure of the poster, which in it has figure one, a figure of the poster. It's just recursive all the way down. Oh, my gosh. It's so good. <laughs> it's really good printing, too. You can actually, like, read it in the figure one of the poster. Yeah. Oh, man. And then, of course, they have to include the graph of poster area versus knowledge scaling curve <laughs> in theory, typical results in their poster, which is, yeah, lo- small poster area, large knowledge scaling curve. <laughs> Right. (laughs) Um, But I have to ask, they said they have a little note up there, as most posters do. If interested in collaborating, email fedex.attack at gmail.com. I don't know how many emails these people got. Quite a few, I bet. I bet it was an insane amount. (laughs) I would be curious to see this happen at a geological conference. Oh, Uh, so easy. Different conferences have different personalities. Some conferences will be resulting to security camera footage to find out how they could charge you for <laughs> putting up a poster on a poster board. I have no doubt paying an abstract fee. Exactly, I have no doubts that all conferences would do that. <laughs> uh, but some conferences would think it's hilarious. Oh yeah, I can see this going over well at um, LPSA. Maybe depends on what day, right? 
<laughs> right. And, you know, uh, speaking of LPSA, I guess that's uh, oh. <laughs> the last thing I want to talk about was a news item. That's right. Um, so when you talk about Artemis, obviously I'm thinking about the Andy Weir book, but that's not what we're talking about here. <laughs> Right. So NASA has selected a geology team for the first crewed Artemis landing. And one of the people on the team is a Don't Panic Geocast alum. And I'm sure this is why he was selected for the team. Right. So Brad Jolliffe, uh, you're, you're welcome. I'm, I'm sure that the interview on the show helped, helped uh, push you over the top on this. And if you'd like to come 100%. on and talk about this. Uh, again, so you can, uh, you know, further your, your career in planetary science, uh, we would be happy to have you back on. We're so proud. <laughs> but in all, in all uh, seriousness, congratulations to everybody on the list. And, yes. And especially, it's nice to see a familiar name on there. Yes, exactly. And we're insanely jealous, but we'll move on. It's okay. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, if you need some pointers for planning your field campaign. We have done a podcast about the moon, so we're very qualified. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but if you have information on a poster of your own or planning field campaigns or anything of the sort, we would love to hear from you. Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, I guess I have to say we're on X now, right? Uh, I, I guess. Yeah, I guess. At Don't Panic Geo, I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. Patreon's still the same, though. If you would like to support us, you may do so. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.